0: So every every few weeks, we want to have a, a family family worship service or something we're trying. And so thank you guys for being uh, patient and willing. And, and uh, if you have children that are above five, up to 10, and, and you didn't know, it was kind of a like out of nowhere thing, uh, be sure to, to find me or even Judy is over here to my left and your right. She is our Christ City Kids director. And just get to know her. and. Pass along your information so we can be sure to let you know of any time we do uh, family events like this and have the kids come forward. I know for me that was always a special thing growing up. Um, So we're in this series called Margins where we're going through um, the book of Acts and we're looking at these passages as we go through chronologically of these moments that were happening in this first century development of the church you know, as, as it was expanding. And we're finding a lot of these stories are people who were on the margin, people who didn't necessarily fit into the normalcy of what a lot of people considered like kind of where the power was and influence was and how Christianity just kept moving to, to the margins. And we've had some really great messages so far. I really think that the last two weeks have Drew... Um, talking through the eunuch, and then last week, if you didn't get a chance to hear Jamin's sermon, both have just been fantastic. And and so this morning I have some fear, but the fear isn't, and the shame isn't from, because they're such great teachers, and I gotta follow that up. Uh, The fear and shame is, is because I'm a guy, and I'm going to talk about how that in the church today, uh, that, well, actually I wanna talk about the impact of women in the early church, and how that we have kept women from having an impact in the church today. So that's my sermon after Thanksgiving, and I'm sure it's just going to go great. Uh, so, uh, and and here's the thing: when you when when you try to teach through Scripture chronologically, you have to be faithful to what you come across. Um, and so that's what I want to do with this. And. Uh, and I hope it actually opens up some discussions for us and makes us have to think a little bit a little bit wider. My goal never in a sermon is to answer all the, you, you know this by, from me by now, I'm not going to give you too many answers from a sermon. You have, I've heard your complaints on that, but I am going to give you a lot more things to wrestle with because I think the Bible's filled with things that we need to wrestle with. And I think in the wrestling, I mean, that's even the name of Israel, to wrestle with God. That's how God identifies his people, that I always want you to be wrestling with me. And I, I think scripture gives us an opportunity. So we're gonna talk about this woman named Tabitha. And I just wanted us to explore her story. I think it's really interesting where her story lands. It's right after Saul's conversion, who becomes Paul. And it's right before we had this huge explosion into the Gentile world, which that's what you are here for, for more than likely, is a Gentile. You're here because of that. But there's this little story in between of a woman named Dorcas of Tabitha. And let's look at verse 31, though, because this is important. It says then the church throughout Judea Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit it increased in numbers. Now this is important because there's a there's a healing uh, and unification happening within Israel's history when when we see this here this is a big deal from south in Judea to north in Galilee from Samaritans who were called dogs by Jewish people at this time to Jews who are considered the most privileged of their of their kind of, of religion there's a unification happening that Christianity is bringing all these groups of, of people together people who didn't before now connect past lines of social economical barriers that's a big big deal no no other religion could do that in the history of the world and this movement was was helping that that happen. And we see here that there's even a word that says that they were um, they were in peace, being strengthened, which is a really interesting word of the Greek. It's, it's this word, oikodomeo, oikodomeo. Oikos would be the word for house. Oikodomeo is this active word meaning building a house, which is really strange. Like when it says... They were in peace and strengthened. It just is that one word, orchidomeo. And and the best that a lot of translators can really try to wrestle, I mean, it looks weird to say it this way if you were to translate it just in English, but the word means that they were like house builders. They were house builders, which I think is a beautiful idea. They were building a new kind of house that the world had never seen. They were making a new kind of home that the world had never even seen considered. That's what this movement was about. That's what it was doing. So we see that in this building of a house of a new reality and a new world, there was all this peace happening amongst God's people. And Peter and others are traveling around. And we find that Peter goes to this place called Lida, which would be, if you could think of in, in modern-day Palestine, Israel, if, if Jerusalem is kind of south-central, Lida is just about probably 20 miles west of there, heading to the coast, and he goes there for this man who it says who'd been bedridden for eight years, and we really have no other reason why this person would be mentioned except as a springboard to to Joppa. Now, Joppa is modern-day Tel Aviv. That's what Joppa would be, and Tel Aviv or Joppa is one of the most important, coveted um, pieces of land and cities in the history of the world. It's been conquered Um, I think it's either the most or second most than any other city in the world throughout history because it was like the gateway into the Middle East. It had this, it was this port town. And so because of that, it was very diverse and a lot of cultural crossover was, was happening throughout. So Joppa was this hustling, bustling city. And we find that, we read on here in, in verse 36, it says, In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. Her Greek name is Dorcas, and she was always doing good and helping in helping the poor. Now it's, it's interesting that it would say Dorcas. That would be her, her Greek name. So here's what we know: that she's 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 mixed, she's biracial. She's Jewish and she's Greek, which means she's a Hellenist Jew. And if you've been with us in the series, you know that there were Hellenist Jews, believers, who were coming to faith back in in Acts 6. And we'll even kind of tie more of that connection here in just a moment. But we don't really know exactly a lot of, of Tabitha's story. We know that her name Tabitha in Aramaic Hebrew and her name Dorcas in Greek means gazelle. So the alternate uh, sermon title was The the Gazelle of Joppa. That sounds kind of fun, maybe even a good book name for somebody at some point in time, The Gazelle of, don't you wish you could be called The Gazelle of Joppa? Um, So um, we have this woman, Tabitha, who um, she is doing really good work. Now, the Bible's intentional with its words. It's not wasting words. It's always trying to get across a message. Trust me on that, right? Like it's, and, and with Acts, you have to remember something. It's not even trying to state historical happenings. It's not trying to list all the chronological things. Uh, the Bible, people didn't necessarily think in those terms with history at this time. They need to document this exact thing. That's why you have four accounts of Jesus in the Gospels that we have to wrestle with. That they're trying to get across something intentional with this story. And so it's just interesting that we have this person here, this, this woman, Tabitha, and, and what she's doing. And we find that she's mentioned she's first a woman, which means she's a minority in a, in a male-driven society. She's also a um, she's also a Hellenist which means even for women who were Jewish, they still had a leg up in prestige than women who were biracial, right? So we have this woman, Tabitha, who is living in this town, and she's ministering to these women, these widows that were kind of the forgotten, and I wouldn't necessarily say the lowest of low, but they were very disregarded, within cultural in general, because it was a male-driven world, a very patriarchal society. But it's really interesting that for Tabitha, they're giving her these really prestigious like titles to her, these things associate with her. First, it says she's a disciple. And the only other person that's called individually a disciple outside of the 12 was just a few verses before when we have Ananias, who's ministering to Paul. Ananias and Tabitha are the only two people in the New Testament that are called a singular disciple, and she's the first female to be called a disciple. It's a pretty big deal. That's very intentional. And then it goes on to say that she was doing, she was full of good works and helping the poor. No one else gets that accreditation within the New Testament, that she was full of good works and she was helping the poor. She was doing big things in a small way for people who were forgotten about within culture and society. And this is what Luke, the writer of Acts, is wanting us to pick up on, that he, here is a person who's on the margins of society, ministering to the people who are living in the margins of society and making a difference, and it's becoming well-known. This is what they want you to remember within space and time in Scripture, Keep that in mind. We then find in verse 37, it says, About that time, she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Again, interesting. She is placed in an upper room. The only other time that things are talked about in an upper room, just so you know, is Jesus with his disciples. Again, words are not wasted. Things that Luke wants you to keep in mind as he's writing here. There's something significant about this person's life, this woman making a difference in a world that does not cater to women. And so what happens is she's, the whole burial process would be that she was bought to be washed and cleaned and wrapped in linen and all those kind of things. And And then they find out that Peter is in Lydda, just about nine miles east of Joppa. So they go and they rush and bring him back. And as he comes, we see in verse 39, it says, Peter went with them. And when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. And all the widows stood around him, crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Again, she's not called Tabitha in that verse. She's called Dorcas because the people she was ministering to were Greek. They were Roman, right? They were not these kind of pure-blood Jews. And she had made such a difference. Just imagine the scene. So here's what we know. We know that Tabitha, that Dorcas was a seamstress. We know that what she did is she, she wasn't running around Joppa doing these miracles of healing. That's not what she's remembered for in history. She wasn't laying hands on somebody and they fall over and they're healed or an arm grows back or whatever. She was doing something as simple as taking needle and thread and weaving it through fabric to put on the backs of these women who we see in Acts 6 are totally forgotten about and overlooked by Jewish Believers, followers of Jesus. So much so, they have to bring a correction to leadership and bring them to attention and say, You are doing something very unjust here by overlooking these people. If the Jesus movement is about elevating people who are in need, you are not doing that. If it's about seeing people who are unseen, you are not doing that. And what we see is Tabitha takes this message very dear to heart. And she takes what she can do and she brings these many miracles into these people's lives who are completely overlooked and forgotten about. Now, listen, I can't overemphasize the importance of seeing people who are unseen. This is how God introduces himself in the Bible in, in Exodus. Exodus 2, verse 25. We have people who crying out in their slavery. And it says that God heard their cries and he, yada he knew, he saw them where they were. We had this beautiful story in Genesis where there are these two people, Abraham and Sarah, who aren't, they're venerated, but they're not like always the best of people. They have this weird abusive relationship with one of their, their servants named Hagar. Hagar runs away from them. She's made to be impregnated to carry a baby that she doesn't even necessarily know she wants. She runs out to the wilderness trying to get away from all the abuse and all the things she goes through. An angel comes and meets her. Here's, so here's a minority woman overseen, overlooked, forgotten about, running away. When she gets to the wilderness, the angel comes and meets her. And then she gives a name to God. The first person in scripture to ever give a name to God is a woman minority minority overlooked, and guess what the name she gives to God? Elroi, the God who sees. It's a really big deal to see people in need. Even if it's just one starfish, it's a really big deal to see people in need. And I believe we get so caught up so many times over the big picture things, we miss just the day-to-day reality of being the kind of people who can see other people, and that actually makes a difference. You don't need, I don't need to work a miracle in the moment when I can simply just give a person, like, a shirt, some food, a little bit of cash, a ride to see them. And we find that all these women, they start bringing their clothing, the things that they had received from Tabitha, from Dorcas, to Peter. Imagine the moment, these women crying and their tears drenching these Pieces of clothing saying, this is what she meant to me. This is how she saw me. This is how she met me. Like, just imagine the emotion happening there. So then Peter's like, okay, we got to gather ourselves here. He's just like, y'all need to leave the room. He gets on his knees. He prays. And then he speaks to Tabitha and says, get up. And she gets up. Now, here's the question. Like, why is this story here in Scripture? If it simply was just so that a big miracle happened, they could have said there was the gazelle of Joppa, okay, who died and then was raised back to life. Boom, high-five Peter. Nope. It's getting into some details that doesn't want us to miss because in a male-driven male-powered world, we see women making a big difference in taking ownership of things that even other men were always taking ownership of. We see these women on the edges of society and the margins of culture making an impact, an impact that, was so big and so great, Luke felt it was important to document this. Listen, we don't really know exactly if Tabitha was a widow or not. I will say this. We have a picture of her here, an icon. The Eastern Orthodox Church has venerated venerated her into a saint, St. Tabitha the widow, that it, it must take a widow to really understand the needs of widows. Right? Like, this is a person that is marked in history as just a big deal. And I I think that this matters for us and it's important for us to consider because whether it was Samaritans or Jews, whether it was Galileans or or Judeans, whether it was women or men, the movement of Jesus is one that elevates minorities and the unseen to a status like that of those who are noticed. Say it again. The movement of Jesus is one that elevates minorities and the unseen to a status like that of those who are noticed. The movement of Jesus, this movement happening in space and time in the first century, is one that subversively takes the power movements of the day, turns them on its head, and ensures power and recognition is distributed evenly. And in this small way, Something profound must be remembered by the early church. That women make a difference. And that they shape culture. And that if we ever lose that and ever take away that, we are losing out on what the movement of Jesus truly could be. And by telling the story of Tabitha, Dorcas to the women who were unseen, we see a woman working in the power of the Spirit, making a difference. Now, what does this mean for us? I think a couple of things. Um, I think it's a corporate level, and then I think I'll try my best to do it at an individual level. Okay. So first, uh, a corporate level. As I was thinking through this message, um, I was thinking about the influence of women in my life. I first had to start with my mom. Now, you guys have heard plenty of stories of how things went crazy down in Mississippi uh, for little old Robin, okay? And sure, there's, there's plenty of those stories. Uh, also, it's important to be able to say that um, uh, my mom brought me as a 13-month-old from a war-torn country in Iran— by herself, had to be transited and stay in Istanbul for nine months and brought me to America and took care of me. Pretty big deal, okay? Um, She was a single mom. Even when there was a remarriage here, you know, like, it's still, she was a strong single mom. Uh, She worked several jobs, factory jobs until she kind of created her own niche and career in being a stylist. And then she created her own business and became one of the premier, uh, stylists and salons in my town, uh, with her own hands. That's what she did. Um, so she raised me, had her own career, um, built her own business Uh, led worship in my church for 25 years and made sure that I was taken care of and that I regularly was woken up at 6 a.m. to read my Bible. (laughs) That's the kind of woman I was raised by. When I was 25, I talked a woman into marrying me. Her name is Suzanne, Uh, and it was rough, all right? Um, I didn't deserve to ever stand on a platform and wield a mic uh, and try to talk about Jesus, and she would even tell me that. She would say things to me, how can you go preach the gospel when you're not living the gospel out at home? I can't support you in this. Yeah, that's called having a voice. Um, And it's because of her willingness to have a voice and for her to be healthy, I actually was led to more health it's because she had boundaries and she kept lines and she took care of herself and made hard decisions that forced me that if I was gonna be with this person, I was gonna have to do the same. That's called strength. I'm not who I am and where I am today without my wife Suzanne's willingness to be not just a strong woman, just a strong person. Just someone with a voice to say, this is what it means to follow Jesus. And Robin, like, I remember her even saying to me, I remember our first year of marriage, it was so bad. And she said to me, she goes, I'm leaving you and I will come back when you go get therapy and get help. And then we'll figure this out. I went the next day to start getting therapy and help. She came back a day after that. And I can honestly say today we have a marriage that I like for others to look at. There's nothing fake about it, it's ours. It's not perfect, but it's ours. And it's something that I'm really proud of. And I'm, we didn't get there because I was such a strong man and I made really many decisions and I manned up in the Lord, you know what I mean? And, and then high-fived, you know, the world and took it by the horns and biblical, ugh. Anyway, you get it. It didn't happen that way. It happened because there were strong women who made hard decisions to keep pushing me to make better decisions in my life. And I think that so many times in the church, we're just very male-driven. And I think that's just really hurtful. I think for some of you as women, it's really hurtful that there's even a male preaching. It's very hard for you in some ways. And I always admire that. I always admire anyone who shows up and says, in the face of any time I've been hurt by another person, I'm going to keep like, keep coming back because it's beyond Robin or anybody else who's preaching here. This is about Jesus, and I just want to engage with Jesus, and I think maybe this place gives me my best shot at doing that. But I think there's something off in our culture, something off in the water we're drinking if we don't really know how to, like, empower women to shape culture. Here. Uh, Madeline L'Angle, it's in your, your bulletins, she says, one of the most uncourageous things we of the female sex have done throughout the centuries is to have allowed the male sex to assume that mankind is masculine. It is not. It takes both male and female to make the image of God. The proper understanding of mankind is that it is only a poor broken thing if either male or female is excluded. It takes both. And when you find that there's one more than the other we have to ask the questions what's going on i'll say this you know uh, this church was originally founded in a very particular way of doing ministry it was very male driven i'm not saying anything that isn't you know seen it was just very male driven that's not a wrong thing but it is a thing and what we're finding is is that there's things we're moving into and transitions we're making where we're needing more wisdom and more insight as we go through these transitions more than ever before. And I think sometimes, guys, and I think there's a lack of sensitivity and intuition that we have on things. We just kind of miss stuff along the way. And I was reading this to my staff earlier this week to to the going, hey, this is, I think, an important conversation. And, And it comes from a guy named Richard Rohr I just want to read it here. It's a long quote, two slides. Just follow along best you can. Historically speaking, in most cultures, the role of men has been to create, to make new things, to fix broken things, and to defend us from things that could hurt us. However, most children saw their mothers in a different way. She was not a creator, a fixer, a defender, but rather a transformer. Through pregnancy, she knows something about mystery, about miracles, and about transformation that men will never know. Women who are not mothers often learn it by simply being in the community of women. Mothers are characterized by attentive love. They have to keep watching this new life. They have to keep listening and adjusting to the needs of the child. It is necessary to recognize a new agenda with the growth of a child. If the mother cannot transform herself into attentive love, she quite simply cannot be a mother. She has to learn early on that life is about change, not about tanning her ground, which is not a sign to help a child. All growth is about changing and adjusting to what is needed at this moment with these tears and by this child. I'm not trying to create a binary conversation to sort of clear, I think there's a lot of attributes that men have, uh, that women have. I think there's a lot of attributes that women have that men have. I'm not trying to create a binary conversation. What I'm trying to say is, I think he's on to something here. Listen, whether, unless you've only been here for a few months, or haven't been back really in the last year, or just had your head in the sand, this church has been through some things. Just a few. Okay? Um, in, a, in a desire to be a place for people to belong, we've lost people along the way who didn't buy into that. In a, um, in a desire to be a place for people to know God, we've lost people who didn't see it the same way. And all of that, like, whenever you're clear on vision and mission, it makes people have to, like, make decisions, just so you know. That's just called leadership. That's not a wrong thing. It is what it is. And yet, whenever you make decisions and saying, hey, here's where we're going, here's what we want to be about, and people have to make decisions, you go, oh, man, I just wish everybody would kind of stay in on this. And then you have that, like, following the explosion that was just, you know, a little less than two years ago, us as the church trying to figure out and deal with. So all that to say, there's lots of transition. And transition is a good thing. I know all of us want to get to the settled place where it all just makes sense and we're all good and eat like big grapes like they did in, in Joshua. I'm guessing that's what they were eating, like big grapes, right? I think they said like it was a land of milk. It was milk, a lot of milk. That's what they had, milk and honey. Um, that's weird. But I think a lot of us would love to have that. But the reality is like transition is important because it's in transition that you're able to grow. And I think that in this season of transition, we need more and more women shaping culture, giving direction, saying, hey, here's how I see this here. Here's been my experience there. Because what I found is this, I'll go back to my mom, I'll go back to Suzanne. I wasn't given a lot of, well, you know, if you just think this exact thing here and believe this exact way here, it's all just going to work out just right for you. I wasn't given that. I was given lots of, hey, I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to be with you, but we've got to do some changing. So we're going to kind of work on this in a really like more intuitive way. We're really going to talk through some things here. I don't think change gets to happen unless you have those kind of people around. And, man, that's not to say that you aren't equipped to do that at all. Trust me. I'm not trying to create some kind of, like, separation. What I am trying to say is I think it's important that we give more and more space to everyone to be able to lead and shape. And I'm not even trying to tell you, like, specifically how that has to happen. But I'm just saying that I think that that's, I think that that is really important. Because in those places that we're in now, it's not as much about uniformity. Like, let's all just be the same. Let's all just understand these exact same things. It's about having more sensitive, soft touch tones with one another, listening to one another, being with one another. And I think when you only have a male-driven culture, you can't do that as well. I just don't think so. I think it takes both hand in hand. And I think when we don't do that, we miss out on the image of God. Practically for us as a church, that's why we attempted to even start it by going, we're going to create a women's council. We're going to bring them alongside the elders to help us make decisions. Some of you didn't really understand why we did that. That's okay. That's okay. Some of you were like, finally, is that all? And that's okay too. Nobody ever gets to be fully happy here at Christ. That's our motto. Nobody's fully happy here at Christ City. (laughs) It's a tension we live in. It's a transition we're in. But I'll tell you this this is important. The early church elevated minority voices. And I could confidently say this if we're not doing the same, then we're not following the same Jesus. It just is what it is. You can't read Acts and go, well, just kind of this voice here. Nope. You're we always looking to elevate the voices that can't be heard. This is what it means to live in this stuff together. And I would say for an individual, I think your challenge is this. Guys, men, where do you tend to overlook the female voice in your life? Where do you tend to go, yeah, 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 sure, okay, fine. And like you're missing out you're missing out on having more femininity in your life to shape you and to make better decisions. And if all you have are a bunch of dudes helping you make decisions, that's a really stupid thing to do. It's really foolish. It's really unwise. And in your marriages, if you're just putting up with what your wife has to say and not listening to her, I think it's time to experience some shame. I think it's time to experience like some limitations in what you can and can't do. Ladies, it's a very difficult thing. I can't imagine this. I can't imagine trying to find a voice in a world that doesn't want to give you a voice. So I'm not going to try to do that. What I'm going to say is that you have, it'll take a lot of courage for you. And we want to do the best we can at this church to give you as much space to do that. Okay, and I know that's hard, and um, as, yeah, I think that's it. I want you to know it's hard. We see that. God sees you. I see you. I think the leaders of this church sees you, and it's our desire to, like, figure that out together. Now, here's the thing. I have no way to end the sermon except there. <laughs> I have no, like, really practical thing for you to go home, go try this out. I mean, maybe go draw a starfish this week. I don't know, right? But I think it's okay to stop it there and just go, hey, there's tension. But listen, if we lean into the tension and not away from it, we get a better chance of becoming more of an image of God in this world, more of something that people want to go toward and not away from. Because at least those people are willing to have hard discussions and not simplifying everything. Because listen, your humanity and your gender isn't just simple. It's way more than that. It's way more complex than that, especially with what the world throws our way. I'm saying, well, here's the guy's role and here's the gal's role, and just kind of do it that way. I don't think it's that simple. I think the Bible's clear on that. And I'm not telling you whether it to be a complementarian or a gallantarian. Nope, not saying that. All those can work. Trust me, all those can work. It's a matter of this. Are you seeking to elevate minority voices? Are you giving room for that? Do you look at the Me Too and Church Too hashtag movements and go, oh, that's just political nonsense? No, it's not. There are voices to be heard. Just like in the Black Lives Matter movement, voices to be heard. The question is, do we have the courage and willingness to do it? They do in Scripture. I think we can here. And it's because of the table we're about to go to. Because at this table, we find not Uniformity, but unity. Greeks and Jews, Samaritans, Hebrews, men and women all come around the table and say, I'll follow this guy, this Lord, this Savior. Let's pray. Lord, as we now go before your table, our desire is to approach with reverence. Our desire is to approach with humility. And for us to be able to say that we have met, bumped into, and experienced Jesus this morning. We thank you that this is not memorial service, but this is a engagement of just how big and wonderful and loving and awesome you are. So we're going to bring the worst of us to the best of you and trust that you're going to meet us there. In your name we pray. Amen.